So after uh, we hear uh, the word today, we're going to uh, hear from a couple of our, our new members. We have uh, uh, seven of our brothers and sisters who have been coming out for, uh, for at least six months who are committing themselves to membership here. And we're going to hear a couple of them share about uh, why they're joining our church and how they've been blessed by it. And so um, that will happen uh, a- after uh, we uh, look into God's word and see what it means for us to be members uh, of a church. When I, um, when I <clears throat> prepare to do a wedding service or prepare to uh, marry a couple, uh, oftentimes we'll go through uh, premarital counseling where we talk about some of the things that uh, need to be uh, talked about and dealt with, dealing with uh, sin issues in our hearts and, and, and dealing with um, baggage from uh, seeing marriages uh, in, in our parents' marriage and and uh, the wrong ideas that we might have. And uh, one of the things we talk about during the first week is to come into marriage with the proper expectations because we all have expectations uh, about marriage, but about all things, but about marriage. And we all bring that in, whether we speak those expectations or not, we have expectations. Some of them are right. Things like my life is never going to be the same again. You're absolutely right. You get married, your life is going to change forever. Um, Other expectations like, man, this is going to be really hard work. Um, That's a proper expectation. But we often come into marriage with the wrong expectations also. We come into marriage thinking, uh, all of my problems are going to disappear now that I'm married. Right? Uh, anyone who's married will chuckle at that. Uh, if we were not in a formal worship service, we might laugh out loud at that because that's nothing could be further from the truth. All of your problems are not going to disappear. In fact, your problems are going to start multiplying and you have more and more problems and more and more opportunities to show and extend and receive the grace of God but all your problems aren't going to disappear. All of the issues that you had as a single person are not going to disappear just because you've gotten married. And all the good things in your relationship are not going to become perfect because you get married. See, what happens when you go into marriage with the wrong expectations is that you'll realize that your expectations in reality do not match. And when your expectations and your reality do not match, you know what this gap is called? It's called disappointment. disappointment resides in that space between your reality and your expectations. This is true in all of life. And if you multiply disappointment over and over and over again, it will lead you to disillusionment and you'll give up hope. Because our expectations are oftentimes wrong. It's not only true of marriage, it's true in all of life. I went, I went to that restaurant because oh, everyone's talking about this, this meat buffet, Korean barbecue buffet. And I went there. I was so excited. Uh, my expectation was sky high. And it wasn't all that. Right? Or that movie. Everyone's talking about that movie. Oh, my gosh. Uh, whatever it is that little dinosaur. Oh, it's going to be the greatest movie. Actually, that happened to me with Frozen. A couple of our ladies said, oh, Frozen is like, I think it's the best Disney movie ever in like the history of all of Disney. And so I was like so excited and all the little girls were, were, were singing the songs. And then I watched it about a year after it came out. And I was like, <laughs> that wasn't all that. My expectations were so high that when reality hit, I was disappointed. That's the way it is with life. And when you multiply disappointment can oftentimes lead to disillusionment and becoming disenfranchised with the very thing that you thought was going to be all that. Have you ever been disappointed by church? Have you grown disillusioned with church? If you have, I thank you that you are here. But I want to say that oftentimes our disappointment with church comes in large part because our expectations about what church ought to be are off. 
And so when your expectations at church is supposed to be a, 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 a guilt-free, shame-free, sin-free, germ-free place, and it's not, the first thing that Jesus says about the church in Ephesians 5 is that the church is ugly. And you come to church thinking that the church is going to be beautiful. Your expectations and reality are going to, be, it's going to be a huge gap, and you're going to be disappointed. And so what I want to do today is talk about the reality that the Bible wants to communicate about what it is to be the church and what it is to be a member of a church. Because today we're inviting and welcoming seven new people into membership. We have a bunch of you who have already committed to be members of our church. And I want to remind you and encourage you, inspire you, challenge you, and maybe cause some of us to think about what it means to be a member of a church. Let's look at Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, we're going to read verses 3 through 8. And I'm going to pick out two things uh, from this passage that tell us about how to become a great church member. I think the difference between a good church member and a great church member is your actions, what you do. Okay, that's what determines whether you're a good church member or a great church member. But I also think that the difference between a good church member and a bad church member is your expectations. The difference between a good church member and a bad church member are your expectations. If you expect the wrong things, then you will probably become a bad church member. But if you expect the right things, then you're already on your way to being a good church member. And then if you take those expectations and you live them out, then you can be a great church member. Romans 12, verses 3 through 8, this is the word of God. I'm actually going to read the first part of verse 3, give an editorial comment, and then we'll, we'll continue. This is God's word. Paul says, for by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, he's talking to the church in Rome. I say to every one of you, he's saying, I'm talking to you, pastor. I'm talking to you, newborn baby. I'm talking to you, leader. I'm talking to you, new believer, talking to everybody. So he says, for by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Here's what he's saying. To put it bluntly, he's saying, listen, it ain't about you, right? You're not all that. All of this in church does not exist for you. It's not about your needs and your preferences and all my needs are not being met. There is part of that that happens, but that's not the first thing he's saying. Saying to every single one, he's talking to me and he's talking to you and he's talking to everybody. And he says, the more mature you are, the more you got to get this. It ain't about you. The less mature people, it be, to, to those who don't know God, he says, yeah, it is, it is for them. But the more you grow in your maturity, listen, have sobriety that this show, it, it's not all for you. The church does not exist to meet your needs. And so, right, that's what he says. As we go on, what does that look like? Verse uh, four, just as each, each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts uh, according to the grace given us. The man's gift is prophesying. Uh, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it's serving, yeah, let him serve. If it's teaching, let him teach. If it's encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, uh, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. This is God's word. So what does it mean that the church is not about us? It's not about me. 
And it doesn't exist for me and my needs and my preferences. And if the songs that they sing today are not good, then that's not, that's not something that I should get upset about. And what does it mean that it's not about me? Two things. The first thing that we uh, will see, the first thing is that being a great church member, a great church member comes to serve and not be served. Okay? Um, we, we see this throughout this passage about the gifts and the different gifts. And if you've got a gift, then use it. Um, when I was in high school, when I was, in a, I was part of a, a youth ministry, and I had a friend named, named Jason, not uh, Jason, anyone here, but I had a friend named Jason in, in Virginia, and he was part of our youth ministry's praise team, right? Very active, very com- committed to our church. And one day he said, hey, you know what? I'm going to stop coming to church for a while. I said, why is that? And he said, well, it's just like people have been ignoring me at church. We had about 150 people in our, our youth ministry. People have been ignoring me. Uh, they're not really acknowledging me. And uh, I'm going to kind of step back and, and step away for a little bit and, and see if people recognize if they reach out to me. And then every Monday, he would call me after school and he'd say, hey, uh, did anyone ask about me at church? I was like, you know, nah. I would tell him the truth. Yeah, somebody asked about you. Who, who, who? Uh, you know, whoever it was, or no, nobody asked about you, and nobody cared, I'm just kidding, but nobody asked about you, nobody asked about you, or somebody asked about you. After a while, right, this went on for, for a few months, and every week or every other week, he'd say, hey, did anybody ask about me? I'd say, hey, listen, you know what? Um, I think you've got to rethink this whole thing, because it's not like you're not a, a, a committed person at, at this church. Uh, you've been going there for all of your life, you committed to our church, you committed to our youth ministry, you're serving in the youth ministry, you're one of the leaders of our youth ministry, don't you think your attitude, your mentality should change so that it's not about them serving you, but you should be looking for ways to serve other people when you go? Shouldn't that be the mentality of a committed member of our youth ministry? Can I ask you, are you like my friend Jason? Is a good day at church constituted by the fact that it was a message that I liked and I, st- I stayed awake for. I knew the songs and I really liked them. I didn't have to give much money because the, actually, for some reason, the offering plate didn't even come to me. I walked out to the bathroom during that time. I didn't have to give anything. And like three people said I had a nice T-shirt on or I had a nice skirt on or whatever it was. I had a great day at church. Is a good day at church constituted by how much we receive from what we're doing in here? If you are, then I wouldn't fault you because we live in a culture that tells us that this is the way it ought to be. You know, we live in a culture they call it a consumeristic culture, where one of uh, the, the many things about a consumeristic culture is you've got lots of choices. And granted, you have lots of choices that you could choose to call your church. And the, the end game of a consumer is that you would be happy and you'd be satisfied. And so in order to be happy and satisfied, you look at the plethora of choices available to you and you invest into the things that you think are going to return the greatest uh, return on your investment in terms of being happy or being satisfied. And so after worship service, some of us are going to go to the Winter Garden Village and say, you know what? I'm hungry. I want to eat. And so you go to McDonald's and you say, you know, the reason I want to go to McDonald's is because Everybody comes out of McDonald's saying, I'm loving it. And so I'm going to go to McDonald's and I get my Big Mac on it. So you're eating your Big Mac and all of a sudden you're like, you know what? I ain't loving this. Like, I don't like the pickles in here. I don't like the mustard in here. This is no good. I want to go somewhere else where I can have it my way. And so you go down the road to Burger King. Have it your way. And so you go to Burger King and you're eating this. You're like, oh, my goodness, this is so good. It's like the most amazing 
burger, ah, oh, but then the French fries don't taste good. Ah, oh, forget this. I don't, I, don't want, I don't want this anymore. I don't even want to eat a burger. I don't even know what I want. You think, you think, you think. You think. Oh, I know what I want. I want, Span- I want Mexican food. Yo quiero Taco Bell. And so you go to Taco Bell. And I want to go beyond the border, whatever it is. And so you go to Taco Bell and you start eating this and everything on the menu looks so good. Ah. Oh. Thinking beyond the bun, I want to get this burrito and this grilled stuffed thing and Doritos in it. And it looks so good. And you're eating it. And then someone tells you, you know what? They use grade D food, meat in here. That's like worse than dog food. And you're like, are you serious? Dude, I'm never going to eat beef anymore. I want to, I'm going to eat more chicken. And <laughs> so you go to chick. Well, you can't go today because they're closed. So <laughs> better ingredients make better pizza. So you go to Papa Joe's. This is consumerism, right? I don't like McDonald's, so I go somewhere else, I go somewhere else, I go somewhere else. The end game is what? So that you could be happy and you could be satisfied. And that's the reason why all these choices are given to you. And because it's all about the bottom line for these companies and these restaurants, the customer is always the king. And so if you don't like something, you complain and you get it. And they'll bend over backwards to give you what you want. That's fine in capitalistic America, in a consumer culture outside of church. But when that creeps into the church, we begin to live with the sense that, you know what? I'm sitting back watching this thing. And if my needs aren't met, I'm going to go to another church that meets my needs. And oftentimes that's what people feel. And that's what people think. And that's what church is for them. And so they go to a different place and a different place. But that kind of teaching is foreign in the pages of Scripture. In the New Testament alone, the word serve, right, as in you serve, is used 57 times. And the word servant, as in you are a servant, is used 58 times. The message that the New Testament writers, you know, there was no church in the Old Testament, that the New Testament writers are talking about in the church is that serving is important to the life of a Christian. And we come not to be served, but to serve. I did a, uh, I remember doing an elementary school project. Uh, Every quarter we had to do a a project on a different president. And I did one of my (laughs) projects was on John F. Kennedy, JFK. And I, made, I remember making a big poster, one of his famous quotes on American flag, and I wrote, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. I thought, man, that is powerful. Isn't that the attitude that God calls the church to have? Ask not what your church can do for you, but ask what you can do for the church. He says this here, uh, verse, uh, verse 4, just as each of us has one body, With many members, and these members don't all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. He's saying you are a member of this body, harvest, that is the body of Christ. When you think of harvest, can I ask you a question? What do you think of when you think of this body? How do you call it when you talk about it to your friends? You say, this is the church. Or do you say, this church meets at 1030? Or do you say, my church? Is there a sense of ownership that you have over your congregation? Again, it's not about you, but it's got to be, this is, this is my church. What, when, you, when you think about it, like my body, this is your body, right? You think about the body that is attached to your head, okay? Your head, <laughs> your cabeza, right? What do you call that, that body? 
Uh, you don't walk around. So I played, I played flag football with our youth on Friday, um, and they are so young and so fit. They ran so many circles around us. They asked me the next day, are you sore? I said, no. But two days later, I was sore because I'm so out of shape that my bus- muscles are, or my whatever is in me, I don't have many muscles. But they're all thinking about, am I really sore? Am I really sore? And then they're finally getting the message, yeah, we're sore. So right now, I'm very sore. So I call this, right? I call, nobody walks around and says, hey, the body is sore. You don't say that. Right? Who says that? You walk around and say that? Guys. How are you feeling? You played football. How are you feeling? Uh, Things are all right, but the body's a little... You don't say that. Nor do you walk around and say, this body... Look at this this body. (laughs) Don't say that. I'm going to hide behind this. (laughs) Nobody says that. They say, my body. There's a sense of ownership over it. That this is my body. Do you say that about this, your church? How do you talk about it? Because if you're constantly saying the body, this body, that body, that church, then you're probably also going to constantly be saying it exists to serve me. But if you say my body, my church, harvest is my church, then you'll probably be looking for ways that you can go and serve because with ownership comes a sense of responsibility. What do you think? Is this your church? How do you see it? Are you, do you take ownership over it? Because if you do, then you will come looking to serve and not be served. I, when, when I was in college, right before I went to a mission trip, our mission team had a retreat somewhere up, up in Maryland. My home church was in Virginia, so we didn't go to uh, my church. We went to a different church in Maryland, which at the time, a thriving church, a great church, was known for its worship team. They, have, they wrote many songs, and they had a great, great, great bunch of great preachers there. But of that worship service some 20 years ago, I don't remember any of that stuff. I remember one song that we sing. I don't remember the message that was preached. But the one thing I remember, that during announcement time, when the presider said, let's go and let's greet one another in the name of the Lord. I remember being a newcomer there. I didn't know a single soul. But immediately, I got bum-rushed by about four or five people who came running up to me with these big old smiles on their face and said, we are so happy that you're here. There were two people, an elderly woman, an elderly man, both of whom were in wheelchairs, and they wheeled up to me, and they said, are you new here? We're so glad that you've come. And I thought, wow, that's what it looks like. For people to take ownership over a church and say, I'm coming to serve other people, not simply to be served. And he says, and I said this last week at our Thanksgiving service, he says, each of you has been given a gift and that is by the grace of God. Do you understand that the gift and the ability to serve is a grace given to you and to me? It is a grace of God given to you to wheel up your wheelchair and to go to people and say hello. Because 20 years after, I don't remember the great preaching. I don't remember the great worship leading. But I remember these individual people who ran up to me, who took ownership over the church and said, I'm so glad that you've come. Could it be that these are the things that people remember a whole lot more than what happens up here? They remember what happens there, right down there. Because of you, not because of these, us. That's what it means to be the church. God's given us a gift. 
to serve other people. If you're a member, that's what you committed to. You know that you, you membership, you have interviews, you sit in my office or we sit somewhere and I go through these vows with you. I say, do you promise these things? You say, I promise. I promise to support the church and his worship and work to the best of my ability. What does that mean? How are you living that out? You come to serve other people. You come to bless other people, not to hang out in the bathroom until 1040 looks like we're done greeting each other. I'm going to come because that time is awkward for me. I say that a lot because I've, been, I've experienced so much grace in other churches during that time of greeting where people didn't ignore me. And I've seen so much hurt during that time of greeting where people were ignored. It's a simple thing. It has nothing to do with our personality. It has everything to do with our maturity and our sense of ownership that this is my church. When I go on, on, on trips... I feel bad sometimes when I go, um, and so I will bring Manny and Elijah. I usually bring them a little something from the from the city to which I travel. And so, uh, one time I brought Manny these uh, markers because she's all into markers. And so she got them and she opened it up. I said, "Daddy brought you a gift," and she was so excited. She opened up. She's like, "Markers, yeah, this is so exciting and so awesome." And she said, "Daddy, mommy, daddy, I want to write a letter for each of my friends." And so she wrote a letter to each of her friends. I was happy. You know why? Because she didn't say, oh, thank you for that gift. I'm going to go put it underneath my bed, never to be used ever in my life. Don't some of us do that in the church? God's given us a gift. Oh, my gift isn't good enough. I'm going to go put it in hiding. But what he wants is what me as a father wanted from Manny that I took the gift of my father and I used it so that others might be blessed. This is what it means to be the church. To serve and not come to be served. Part of what that means, y'all, this is hard for some of us, means coming on time. Ah, that's hard. Right? But it means you make that effort to come. And some of you say, I don't know what, it, what, I don't know what to do. I don't know what my gifts are. In uh, Harvest 201, we got a, a gift test where we went through and looked through all these things and to try and discover our gifts. I can give you one of those if you want. But in the meantime, until you discover what you love doing, what you're passionate about doing, what you're good at doing, what people get blessed by you doing, let's do what the Bible says. Pray for people. Right? Reach out to someone. You, you notice someone hasn't been at church for the last three weeks. Send them a message. Pick up trash, take out trash, open your home, practice hospitality, whatever it means, right? Serve and don't just seek to be served. That's what it means to be a great church member. Second thing, great church members not only serve, right? But they also sacrifice instead of being content with uh, doing the bare minimum. We sacrifice. Verse 6, he talks about we have different gifts. And then it says, if you have this gift, then do it. If you have this gift, then do it. If you have this gift, then do it. Then in verse 8, he says, if, you have, if it's contributing to the needs of others, then do it generously. If it's leading, do it diligently. If it's showing mercy, do it cheerfully. He's saying the, the, the more you get into it, right, don't just do it. Right? Don't just serve, but let's go the extra mile. Right? Don't just do what's normal. Let's go beyond and sacrifice for the sake of your body. You know, just like you, I have my preferences. I have the things that I like. I like when it comes to food, be honest here, you, you know this, I like fried food a whole lot more than I like fresh fruit. Right? I do. I would much rather drink a Coke than carrot juice, just the way I am. Maybe some of you are like that. I'd much rather sink my teeth into a big juicy hamburger 
than a big juicy tomato. <laughs> That's just the way I roll. Maybe you guys are different. And I like steak more than I like salad. But if my doctor said, for the sake of your body's health, you need to make some changes to the way that you live. For the sake of the health of your body, you need to sacrifice that red meat and start eating that bland white meat. I'll do it for the sake of my body. If they say, listen, uh, somebody else is unhealthy, you need to change the way that you eat. I'm not going to do that. Why would I change the way? Why would I make sacrifice for somebody else's body? No, they need to change. That's on them. But I'll do it for my own. Again, do you see this as your body, my church? And if you do, are you willing to make sacrifices of your time, of your talents, of your treasure, of your tithes in order that the church might be built? I love uh, sports. I love basketball. I don't often use sports as illustrations here because I know a lot of us may not like it, but I will today. I'm not a fan of the San Antonio Spurs. They're a basketball team in the NBA. Uh, to me, they're very boring, and they're very vanilla, bland. Uh, I don't like watching them. But nobody who knows anything about the National Basketball Association can disagree with the fact that they are in so many ways a model organization. In fact, of all four major sports, hockey, basketball, football, baseball, they have consistently been rated amongst the top five organizations in all of professional sports. Over the past 19 years, their success has been unprecedented. I think it was 19 years ago, they drafted a guy named Tim Duncan out of Wake Forest University. And since that time, when they were one of the 10 worst teams in the NBA, I don't know exactly how bad they were, but they were bad. The past 19 years, they have been a model of basketball and organizational success. There's a thing called the Spurs way that kind of illustrates the way that they do things. In the past couple years, five of their team members, five of them have taken pay cuts in order to stay with this team in order to accomplish the mission. That, there's one guy, a uh, guy named David West. He's a pretty good basketball player. This year, he's making a cool $1.4 million. Lots of money. But he was offered $12.5 million to play with Indiana. He left $11 million on the table to sacrifice in order that he could stay with this organization because he believed in his philosophy and he wanted to see it become great. In order that we can surround myself with other good players, I need to take less money. And the three biggest stars on their team, Tim Duncan, uh, Manu Ginobili, and Tony Parker have all done the same thing. They said we will take less money so that we can get better people so that we can thrust this organization forward. There's another guy... Um, named Danny Green, signed a four-year contract. He's making $45 million, but he turned down. He could have had a four-year contract for $70 million, but he willingly gave that up to sacrifice for the sake of the team. Tim Duncan was arguably one of the best players in the history of the NBA, the National Basketball Association, on countless occasions has been willing to fade into the shadows in order that others might be thrust into the spotlight for the betterment of his team. 
And some nights his coach will say, Tim, you're not going to play. And he says, whatever it takes, coach, for our team to win. He says, I want you to be fresh at the end of the season when we need you the most so that you can help us to win a championship. And over the past 19 years, they've won five NBA championships way more than any other team. Because people are willing to sacrifice their egos and their pride and to do the dirty work and to sacrifice financial gain in order that the organization might become great. Somewhere in the hallowed halls of their Spurs offices, there is a sign that says the San Antonio Spurs do not exist to win an NBA championship. It says we exist to create a culture and a team that consistently wins NBA championships. And because of that, people are willing to sacrifice so that a culture might be established within that team so that they can continuously win championships and be competitive year after year after year. I'll tell you what, I'm not in this church thing at Harvest so that we could be a quote-unquote good church, whatever that means, for as long as I'm here. That's not my desire. My desire is not that we have a good year and have a good next year. And as, as long as I'm here, the church is doing all right, only to fall apart when I leave. My desire is that our church would continuously be a church that makes disciples, that saves the lost, that glorifies God by equipping Christ-centered leaders to transform the world long after you and I are dead. For the sake of a generation that comes behind us, that's my desire. For the sake of my children who need a church. For the sake of your children who are going to need a church. What good does it do for us to have a a great time in here and to be a good church and to worship God in here and to sing the songs and to leave and to say, that was cool, that was great, I love God, and then have it all fall apart when your children become your age? What good is that for anybody? That's not the desire and that's not the aim. We want to build a church that is built to last. And the only way that's going to happen is if men and women are willing to sacrifice for the sake of the church, and not just do the bare minimum. Are you willing to sacrifice for the church in a generation that you may never ever live to see? Are you willing to pray for revival in a church that you may never live to see? Are you willing to do that? When I think of people sacrificing for church, that's what I think of. I think of a generation before us. I think of people in our Korean congregation who tell me, I'm praying and, and, and everything that I'm praying for is for your congregation because we don't have that much longer left to live. You guys need to take the keys and run with this ship. That's what I think of when I think of people sacrificing for the sake of the church. People who see long enough into the future to know that this has to last a lot more and a lot longer than 2015, 2016. Are you willing to pray and to sacrifice for that, to deposit and to store up prayer, to give financially, to give of your talents in order that a culture might be set when people come in that they see this is a church that's willing to sacrifice for the sake of the church? And are you willing to be part of that church member? I'm not talking to people who are new. I'm not talking to people who haven't committed, but the people who say, this is my church. I've committed to it. Are you willing to give in that way? I think of people who wake up early and come to church on Saturday morning, call on Friday morning, and they, 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 they mow the lawn in our church. People who stay late. 
People who, after working 70 hours a week, are willing to invest into the prayer closet and to pray for their house church members so that they might come to know the Lord. I, some, I, I talk with uh, at house church. When I talk about house church, I often talk about uh, one of our first house church shepherds, H.K. Lim. When he was driving to Miami and driving to Tampa once, twice, three times a week and working all these hours to maintain his grocery store. And then he would come and he, he and his wife, Liza, would feed 20, 30 international students in their home a lot of whom were coming with this consumer mentality. I come to house church because you feed me. I don't care about what we talk about. I don't care about praying for each other. I just want to be fed. And at the end of this one, this international student who never gave time of day to God would see HK falling asleep as he's leading these house church meetings. And he would say, my house church leader is so tired. But he never cancels house church because he wants to show the love of Christ to people like me. And before he left for Korea, he said, I want to know that Jesus that my house church shepherd knows. I think about people like that. That's what it means to sacrifice. Because in Ephesians 3, Paul says, listen, this, the one place where people ought to see the glory of God, one in Jesus, but they should see it in the church. Should see it when they look at the church. One pastor uh, in in Chicago area, Bill Hybels, says there's nothing in all the world like the local church when the local church is working right. When it's not working right, though, and he didn't say this, but I'm saying when it doesn't work right, there are not many things in this world that can be more turn-offish and more painful to people than when the church is not working right. But when the local church is working right, there's nothing like it in all of the world. Its beauty is breathtaking. Its power is indescribable. Its potential is limitless. No matter the capacity for suffering in this world, the capacity of the church to heal is infinitely greater. A church that opens its doors to the downtrodden, the broken, the wandering, the weak, the weary and embraces them with the love of Christ. There's nothing like the church in all the world when the church is working right. And that means when people come to serve and when people come to sacrifice. But who would do that? Who would do such a thing? So many things that we have in our lives, on our plates, so many things that we have to think about, to do, put food on the table, to buy clothes, and all of these other things. So who would sacrifice like that? In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, the gospel writer records the teachings of our ancient rabbi whose sandals we follow, where the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus Christ did not say, I will do the bare minimum. But he will say, I will sacrifice for the sake of a people undeserving. I will sacrifice for the sake of a church. I will lay down my life for my body, for my bride. In order that they might shine and be everything that they were called to be. What if we began? What would it look like if we as a church as members began to come not to be served, but to serve, 
came not to just give the bare minimum and I showed up on Sunday, gave my, my tithe and that's it, but we came to sacrifice. What would that look like? What do we see people coming from the dead, being embraced in the life-giving, resurrected arms of the Savior? What do we see more of that? What do we see more people being sent out to do the work of God? What do we see more house churches being started and developed? What do we see more of the more young people, sixth graders being equipped as Christ-centered leaders and as they go into their middle schools, they're changing their world. More adults, married folks going into their homes and, and changing their families. More college students having a vision for their campus beyond an academic degree and a job that awaits them but to see their campus as a mission field that they can transform for the glory of the name of Jesus. What would it look like? Would we then see the beauty of the church unlike anything that the world has ever seen? Because we have this dream, and we have this dream, and day by day it's being accomplished on the backs of those who serve and sacrifice. But what if there were more people who are willing to lay down their lives for this dream, to make Jesus known in our area and throughout the ends of the earth. Now, one person said, here, here's what it takes. The best churches are all about a bunch of nobodies who go out and they love everybody and they serve anybody and they don't care to be somebody as long as they point others to the beauty of Jesus. That would be us. We don't need to be somebody but we go all out serving anybody, loving everybody so that the true somebody might be exalted. If we do that, man, what kind of an impact could we have? Let's pray together. Can we just take a brief moment right now, just maybe half a minute, um, and just pray to the Lord God. Whatever you felt the Lord God uh, convicting you about, challenging you about, Lord, help me to take greater ownership. Lord, help me come, not to be served, but to serve. Lord, help me to go one step in the extra mile in order that your church might become, might recover the luster, the shine that we were meant to have. We just pray for that for just a couple moments. Pray for yourself and pray for our church. Lord, help our church to shine. Help us to shine as the bride that you saw in your heart when you offered up your life. And let's take a half minute right now just to pray that, and then I'll pray for us, and, and then we'll continue on. Father in heaven, uh, your word calls us the body. Each of us is a member of it. Each of us is a part. And a lot of times we may think we're insignificant. 
because we feel like we're a small part, because we're just a little part, a small member, don't have much to give, but your word tells us in Corinthians that sometimes it's the ones that are less visible that are the most indispensable. In a body, it's the outer things that people often see. We don't see the heart. We don't see the intestines. We don't see the liver. And yet these things are the things that are so valuable and so important. Teach us, each of us, to know the vital and valuable part that we play in being your church. Help us, Lord. The studies and people say that in a given church, 10% of the people do 90% of the work. But Lord, we pray that here at Harvest it would be different. That 100% of the people would be doing 100% of the work and that together we would labor and live and love for the glory of your name. And now as we are here, testimonies from Matt, Fong, and Jay Chu, would you speak through them and encourage our church with what you're doing in us. So we thank you, Lord, and we love you because you've loved us personally and as a church, you've loved us first. In Jesus' name we pray.